Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, February 24th, 2015, and this is episode 1525 of the Survival Podcast. We're going to be doing a listener feedback show like usually comes on a Monday. I did take yesterday off. Um, I needed yesterday off, just to be completely blunt about the whole thing. But I'm back and ready to give you guys a, a short week, but a good week, leading off with a listener feedback show. If you want to be on a show like this, the way to do that is you email me your content to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Make sure that you put TSPC and then like question for Jack, comment for Jack, or video I think you should watch, or whatever you want in the subject line to tell me what it's all about. Uh, try to give me your question or a synopsis of what you're sending me in a sentence or two at most. Then give me a link or the details after that. It'll go better. It'll be more likely that I'll get it screened in the amount of time that I have. It'll be more likely to get on the air. Uh, before I get into your feedback today, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you. Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is westernbotanicals.com. Uh, they're always my first choice when I need something herbal. And when I uh, when I have a, a, a physical issue that I want to de deal with, uh, whether it's a cold or a achy back or whatever, uh, my first uh, choice is always to go to herbs or something herbal first. I just believe it's safer, it's more gentle, it does no harm. And uh, Western Botanicals is my choice when I need something like that. And when I'm not sure what to do, I give them a call. They help me make a good decision. They're real, real people that really care about you. They're also huge supporters of the MSB, giving away their premium membership, which sells for $50 a year for free, free to all members of my support brigade, which more than pays for your membership right there. So check them out today, westernbotanicals.com. If it's herbal and it's legal in the United States, you'll find it at Western Botanicals, where their motto is they want to see an herbalist in every home in America. Next up today, herbs of a different kind. Chef Keith Snow, who we just had on last Friday, it made you really hungry. If you want to now do something about your hunger, get over to Chef Keith's website, harvesteating.com, where he'll teach you to use uh, techniques over recipes, how to make cooking a life skill. And he sells some of the best seasoning and organic ingredients for your cooking you'll find anywhere. He's got a great YouTube channel. He's got a great podcast. He's got a great blog. Check him out today, Chef Keith Snow. Just remember, before you listen to Chef Keith, Eat something, because he's going to make you hungry. Uh, next up, I do want to um, go over the year that was the episode with you, the year 1525. I have three for you today. Sheep Among Wolves, the Anabaptist movement is born. The Straight-Edged and the Protractor. And in a word, Spatula. I'm going to read Sheep Among Wolves, the Anabaptist movement is born, because I think it's something most people wouldn't know about and might find interesting, might. Anyway, some people think that Martin Luther hasn't gone far enough, so they've convinced the German peasants to start a war. The peasants think they're following Martin Luther, but he opposes the German peasants' war and rejects its leaders. But there's a third group who believe in reform but won't join the war and won't follow Luther either. They believe that true Christians should be like sheep living among wolves. 
tried in fire and fire, refusing to kill, and that Christians should be rebaptized with understanding rather than as infants. Their enemies call them Anabaptists, those who baptize again. They believe they are baptizing the first time. I guess they believe the first time that you know everybody does doesn't really count because you're just a baby and they throw water on you. My little take there. They believe they are baptizing the first time. In the modern day, these Christians will be called Mennonites. Uh, here we go. My take by Alex Shrug. The Amish seem locked in the 18th century. They don't use tractors or automobiles, and they don't join wars. Jews have similar sex, although they will use modern devices. They wear those wide-rimmed black hats and look like Amish. It brings to mind the old saying, I don't care what religion you belong to as long as you're embarrassed by it. I'm occasionally embarrassed by my fellow Jews, but they are still my fellows. I once asked a Christian woman if she was ever embarrassed by the Amish. She was utterly unaware that the Amish are Christians, and I don't think she believed me when I explained that they were. seems odd to me that Christians handle disagreements with their fellow Christians by dismissing them as Christians. Hmm, interesting. It makes me think about a radio segment I just heard with uh, several Muslims on the Sean Hannity show. Yes, I listened to Sean Hannity. Not really by choice. It was on the radio when I had to go somewhere at that time of day. But uh, in spite of my desire to hit the knob and change it, he was actually talking to these folks that were Muslims. And he was talking to one gentleman that seemed dramatically level-headed in trying to explain things, so I decided I would listen to him. And Sean, of course, had this other guy on that was talking about how all Muslims that follow the Quran want to kill all of us, blah, 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 as usual, his M.O. And this other gentleman was saying this is not true, and they were quoting certain parts of the Quran that say things like, kill them all, etc., have them not for your friends, etc., things that are no worse than things like stone your kid to death in our Old Testament. And this gentleman, who was a, a member of a, a very large Islamic organization in the United States, was saying, listen, don't tell me the Quran because you read it. I live it. And he started to explain what those verses actually meant, much the way you'll hear a Christian when you challenge them with Old Testament things, explain what they actually meant for the time. And it actually started to get somewhat interesting when he was saying some things along one of the, 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 the quotes is, this was for a battle. This was basically like this was a dictate at the time they were going in. It was, this, was not, this was never meant to mean for all time. And um, he got cut off, of course. Sean didn't want to hear anything he had to say. He got the guy back on the line that was saying the things he wanted to hear. And I was a little bit miffed because I was interested in this take. And the reason I bring that up is I'm a little bit weary of people that say, why don't Muslim, good Muslims speak out about against the bad Muslims? Because, one, they, they, they do. Uh, maybe not the way you would have them, but they do. But where, where are all the Christians speaking out against the televangelists stealing money from the gullible? Where are all the Christians speaking out against the Westboro Baptist Church when they're picketing uh, the funerals of our soldiers who have fallen in battle? And, and saying that they're, they're, and tell, screaming to their parents that, that your child is now rotting in hell with fags. Where are the, where are the Christians speaking out against that? And I think that most of you would answer very fairly with, they're not us. And I have no need to speak out against this. It's clearly not what we are. Maybe the other side feels that way too. Maybe your, 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 your fellow Abrahamic members of Abrahamic religion, the Muslim, feels the same way. 
Uh, I will point this out for those of you who just can't get your head around this. Uh, I, I was you know, commenting with somebody on Facebook yesterday that said, all the Muslims are out to kill people. They never defend the innocent, blah, blah, blah. Uh, one of my greatest mentors in the world, Jeff Lawton, is, is a practicing Muslim. And I don't know. I didn't see most of the people that are calling for basically a modern version of religious persecution getting in front of him to go do relief work at an orphanage. He works with me. I am a deist. He works with other people that I'm sure are Christians, atheists, etc. One of the most understanding and most mentoring people I know. This is a time to start understanding each other and understand that the whack jobs that are out there that would kill you in the name of their faith are no are not really practicing their faith. At least not in my view. That's my take by Jack Spirico. A little longer than normal, but you know, I think that We need to be really careful right now, folks. You need to start looking at what's being said and what's being agreed to with no thought right now. We've done this before with various different groups, and it's never worked out well, ever. My take by Jack Spirico. Let's go ahead and get into today's show. Uh, I want to read something real quick, though, for another history segment because it's so short. The word spatula. Comes to, comes to use in England, it literally means little broadsword, but it actually refers to a broad, flat piece of wood used for stirring or as splints. The word is also re related to spade, as in shovel. My take by Alex Shrugged, I love that Weird Al Yankovic fake commercial called Spatula City in a store that only sold spatulas. I think that's funny because when I was doing my business podcast, I said you could literally build a, a website today that only sold funnels. I had never heard of this thing by Weird Al before. Anyway, moving on, um, I want to start out with a, a quick little bit of feedback from expert council member Michael Jordan, um, even though it's usually not a call-in show, because this, this bee honey tap thing on Kickstarter has gone like super viral, and I have literally gotten... Two to three hundred emails about it. Have you seen this thing? Have you seen? And, and you know what the truth is? As busy as I've been the last twenty-five days, no, I haven't. I haven't even looked at it. I as I as I as I re respond to this, I still have not even had the time to look at it. And the reality is, I am a very novice beekeeper, and uh, very very novice. But I know someone who is like one of the most amazing beekeepers in the world, Michael Jordan. And uh, without even being asked, he provided me uh, a brief audio with his take on this thing. And I'll put a link in today's show notes where you can see it uh, for yourself. But apparently this thing's gone like uber viral. So uh, here we go. Michael Jordan on this bee honey tap thing and what his thoughts are on it. Hi, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company calling in, Jack. And just a quick note, I saw a big post on Jeff Lawton's, uh site about the Honey Flow box. I've had several emails, several phone calls about it, and I want to let you know it's a great novelty. I think it's pretty interesting. I think how they crack the hive is going to cause uh, bees to actually probably swarm inside the hive and uh, start stealing sugar from themselves. I'm not sure how the concept completely works. I looked at the patent. I looked at the system. Like, it's a great novelty. I think they'll, they'll, I think there's some things that's wrong with it, but they've done a lot of development and it works. And I think it's a great novelty. 
the one thing that I hate to see for it is that to be introduced to drip feeding and stuff to where you could produce 400 pounds of uh, drippable honey from corn sugar. I posted some links on your Facebook page and emailed you some things, but I just had all these people contact me, and I want to let you know to your audience that it's a good novelty for beekeepers that have already been beekeeping, but you're still going to have to mess with the bees and everything. It's not going to take away from that. Hey, this is the Bee Whisper from a bee-friendly company. Thanks for uh, listening and tuning in. Uh, next up, I actually want to talk to you guys about um, well, let me let me go give me a, a little bit of my thoughts on this. Uh, though, I mean, compared to Michael, what do I know? Um, I, I pretty much agree. I, I, I really didn't look at it because I didn't have time, and I kind of felt like as much momentum as this thing had, it was probably viral over reality, and it seems like what it is. There would be this belief that if I get this thing, I can just have bees in my backyard. Whenever I want honey, I'll just go pull a stick and honey will come out and I'll never have to touch the bees. I'll never have to open the container or what have you. Um, I, I just don't think that that is a very realistic way to be able to keep bees, honestly. Um, I think if you wanted the most uh, trouble-free method of keeping bees that's ever existed, it would be the original way that bees were kept by a lot of folks here in, in North America where they were kept in skeps, these woven skep baskets, and you had all your hives, and then every year you washed your hives in your weakest hives. Um, you in, in the winter when they were frozen, you just took them to the river and drowned them. And then you got the honey out, and then you, you took the wax if you wanted it and discarded the bees and let the chickens eat it. And, uh, you know, then you, 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 you went on with, with new hives, and they, they would actually divide hives when the bees were all frozen because bees actually freeze. Um, and, and, or they would just set out skeps and let the, the hives naturally divide when they exceeded, uh, their, their capacity. Uh, and they ended up with very strong hives because they simply killed the weakest hives every year. That's not how I would do it. It's not how I do do it. But if you wanted to, to do as little as possible, uh, though your, your yields certainly would be nothing compared to what they are from modern techniques, that would be a way to do it, I guess. Um, but this idea that we can have some way that we can, take from the bees without managing the bees just doesn't seem very valid to me personally. I agree with Mike. It's probably a cool novelty. It might be, you know, bee, beekeepers that are serious beekeepers are the most, you know, one of the most evangelical uh, groups I've ever met that do their evangelism without being over the top. Like some of you ham radio guys, it's like, please, I don't want ham radio. Go away and leave me alone. I understand it's cool. Go away. I mean, just too much. Beekeepers seem to be able to do it without doing that like because it, it, it's like i'll totally listen to you but i'm not getting bees and they're like it's okay bees are awesome maybe your neighbor will get them check them out right so anyway um i love beekeepers and i think anything they can do to raise awareness and get more people doing it is great and i think that's maybe more what this is but i actually think there's a lot of people that might back this thing and get one or whatever that don't know anything about bees and then just think they're gonna buy a package and dump it in it and might be pretty disappointed i'm not sure we'll see I like the concept, but I don't necessarily have a lot of faith in the execution. So moving on, last Friday, or this Friday, I guess, depending on how you look at it, Friday last week, um, Keith Snow and I talked about 
old methods of food food cooking and food preparation that resulted in storable food. So it wasn't so much like, here's how you store food. It was more like, when you make confit, you end up with something that's pretty storable at cellar temperatures or refrigerator temperatures compared to if it wasn't done that way. Uh, and, and quite a few other things we went through. We talked about fermented vegetables, pickled vegetables, things like that. And it prompted someone on the blog to ask a question that was basically, can you post some good brine recipes? And I posted a recipe to a, a website called Wild Fermentation uh, on how to make uh, sour pickles, fermented sour pickles, and said this is an example, but really what you're looking at is three-eighths cup of natural salt. Take your pick, whether it be sea salt or Himalayan salt, or kosher salt, or what have you, to a gallon of water. So if you need two gallons, you would use, you know, six-eighths of a cup, and you do the math from there. You make the water salty enough, and then you submerge whatever you're pickling in that salty water. Uh, the crock I use has these big stones that weigh everything down, like Keith was talking about. A lot of times I'll take, like, either grape leaves or cabbage leaves, no matter what you're making, and put them over the top. That way when you weight it down with the stones everything stays below the water level. Because um, if you're doing something like, you know, you're doing peppers and they're cut up, without those leaves across the top, they tend to escape and they get up around the top and they get exposed to the air above the water, which you do not want. And that's it. And everything else is flavoring. That it's the salted water and the object itself that do everything. There's lactobacillus bacteria on there and... You know, once that's in place and, and things are set up, it kind of takes care of itself from there. And and that's the case. Well, I, I didn't realize that maybe there would be some confusion here. So I want to really make sure that everybody understands what you do and what you don't do when you're doing a natural fermentation style of pickling. The big one is you don't use vinegar, Okay. Vinegar can be used for pickling, but it's a different kind of pickling. It's generally what we'd call a hot pack style of pickling. In other words, you, you follow a recipe, you make a pickling brine, and you either put the, the, the brine and the, the product to be pickled into a pot, or you put the objects to be pickled into a jar or container, you pour the hot brine over it, and then you let it cool and you either can it while it's still hot or you refrigerate it after that point uh, and you just you know do it kind of like an instant pickle or, or what have you. There's a bunch of different ways it can be done. And that, that's usually the type of pickling that's done when somebody actually cans food for shelf-stable canning because you're going to use heat anyway. And the way that works is we take, you know, let's say we're making, let's, let's just look at two different ways to make pickles. Fermentation and vinegar pickling. So a, a, a typical vinegar pickling recipe would call for a certain amount of water, a certain amount of vinegar, maybe some black peppercorns, uh, maybe some uh, garlic, maybe some dill, a few other things. And that will all be put into a stock pot and heated. Your cucumbers that you're pickling would all go into jars, and you would heat up your brine and cover over the pickles in the jars with your brine making sure to get some of the garlic and stuff from each one in there, maybe putting a fresh sprig of dill in there. And that has a really high acidity, and the heat that you've used has helped kill any bacteria off. We then take that and put canning lids on them and put it into a water bath canner, and we can it according to the recipe for a certain length of time. And basically we're, we're heating it with steam up to about 212 degrees, 
And between the acidity and the heat, we've killed off anything that can be in there. And the pickle flavor comes from the vinegar, acetic acid. That's what gives it that sour, tart, pickle taste, right? And we could do, we could do pickled carrots, we could do pickled beans, we could do pickled all kinds of things. And what is interesting about doing that is it opens up water bath versus pressure canning to all kinds of things you couldn't otherwise water bath can. So if you had a whole bunch of carrots and you wanted to can them, you'd either have to pressure can, which we won't go in today, but let's just say when you pressurize steam, it gets hotter than 212 degrees. So you can get a higher temperature by pressurizing it. And things without acid have to go in a pressure canner, meats, many vegetables and things, where highly acidic foods like tomatoes can go straight to a water bath canner. We can take the non-acid and combine it with something acid like vinegar or tomato or whatever and end up with a water bath canning method. That is water bath canning, and that is pickling with vinegar, and that is pickling with acetic acid. Vinegar is mostly acetic acid. And you might use sugar in such a recipe because the heat and the instant high acid mean that bacteria aren't going to grow, so you don't have to be afraid that if you put sugar in there, you're feeding the bad guys. Got it? Okay. We do not put sugar in a fermented pickled product. Because we may encourage the growth of the bacteria we do not want, even with the high salinity. So let's talk about how we would make pickles in the traditional fermented style. We take a great big crock, okay, something to put the pickles in. We get our cucumbers to whatever, you know, either whole or cut into slices or cut into whatever size we want. We put them into the crock. Over top of them, we pour enough water to cover them. We mix a ratio of three-eighths cup of salt. You can go higher if you like saltier, but you do not go lower, ever. Because we want enough salinity to inhibit the growth of the bad guy bacteria. We cover them over. We can add to that now whatever we want for flavoring. Let's say the same stuff. Garlic, whole cloves garlic, big handful in there. Big handful of black peppercorns. Fresh sprigs of dill. Boom. We're making almost the same thing at this point. Okay? No sugar. Then we might want to take, like I said, to make sure nothing floats, some grape leaves. Help. Grape leaves are great because they help pickles get crisp. And it's a very traditional method to help to keep the crispness in. Cabbage leaf will work in as a pinch. When you're making sauerkraut, you shredded cabbage, but you might put whole leaves on top to hold everything under. All right? We put the pickles in there. We weight the stuff down so it stays under the water. We put a lid on our crock. There's a lot of different types of crocks. The kind I use has a, a ridge around it. And the lid sits in the ridge. And then you fill the ridge with water. So it's like an airlock on a, on a fermenter for beer. It's exactly the same type of thing. And as the lacto-fermentation happens and gases are released... They bubble up and through the water, but air can't get in. So very quickly, you end up with all of these off-gases, primarily CO2, filling the whole crock. And even if you have a little bit of a failure of your airlock, it's not easy for oxygen to get in there. The reason oxygen can't get in there is because the CO2 is heavier. It sits in there. It has to be opened to be displaced. So you just keep your little rim full. And you ferment it until it tastes the way that you want it. Then you put it in jars and keep it in the refrigerator or a cellar. Or some people will take an entire crock 
great big ones sometimes and keep them down at cellar temperature. That's the old school way to do it. But it's the salinity that does this. Now, where does the fermentation come from? It comes from what's called a lactobacillus or lacto-fermenting bacterium. And it produces lactic acid. And as the acidity comes up in the lactic acid, it ends up doing the same type of preservation that the acidic acid does with a vinegar. It's a little different, but it's the, it's the same but different, man, in the words of, uh, of Tommy Chong uh, from Shishin Chong's Up in Smoke, right? It's the same but different, man. It's, it's kind of the best explanation I can give you of it. But you would not want sugar in there because it takes a couple days for those lactobacillus guys to multiply a number enough to get really, really strong and start whooping ass on everything and taking over the whole medium. The salt is something they can handle that your average bad guy bacteria can't handle. And you're running a balance between enough salt to suppress the bad guys and not having so much salt as to taste like a salt brick when you go to eat it. Okay? So if you give the bacterium high sugar, they're more likely to be able to get going a little bit in there or maybe grow on the surface and some of your stuff gets on the top. It reduces the safety. So if I wanted to create a sweetness in a lacto-fermented product, I would just simply sweeten it right before I ate it. But otherwise, it is salt water and putting the product under the water and holding it there. That is all You do with most. Now, there's some other ways that we do lacto-fermentation. Kimchi uses a different process, a paste made with salt and salty fish and, and, and pepper, and it tastes like, well, I'm sorry if I offend you, but I think kimchi tastes like ass. Um, anything that stinks so bad I don't want to bring it in my house, I don't want to eat. I understand it's good for you and all. I understand it's a Korean national disc, but I've never eaten kimchi and been like, oh, yeah, that was good. Uh, most other fermented foods I do like. Uh, but there are other ways to do fermentation. But most of the time, when we do lacto-fermentation here in America, that's exactly what we do. It's just salt water. Sometimes we don't need water, though. If you do sauerkraut, you slice up your, sour, your, your, your cabbage. The way I do that, I cut the root off the bottom, I cut the head of the cabbage in half, and I just start thin slicing the cabbage across the grain. And you get this really nice shredded effect. You put it all, you, you start pulling it apart, And then you start putting it into the crock. And as you build a layer, you add salt and you kind of smash it down and you add another layer and add, sprinkle salt on it. You just keep doing it by eye. And there's so much water in the cabbage, you almost never have to add water. You might have to add a little bit of water, but you just do that until it builds up. So you have salt, you have a layered salted cabbage. And a couple big whole leaves on the top. You put your weights on it. And you look in there an hour, hour and a half later. And the salt's drawn the water out of the cabbage. And it's, it's covered over. If it's not covered over, you might add some water. If you want, like I talked about Friday, if you want to kick the fermentation in faster, what you can do is make a bit of yogurt cheese and put like one tablespoon of whey into the, the fermenter. And it will kind of kickstart the fermentation and get things going a little faster. And there's tons of recipes as to how long. I generally like to, to remove the objects from the fermenter, put them into jars, seal them up in a refrigerator earlier than most. I like the fermented taste, but if they go a little bit too long, they get a bit sourer than I like them, and a little softer than I like them. I like my sauerkraut and everything. I like it crisp, right? And if you go too long, it gets more of a, it won't hurt you. It's just kind of mushy. I like it crisp. 
And when you put it in the refrigerator, you don't stop the fermentation, but you drastically slow it down. Now, would you ever, let's say, make salt pickled, you know, pickles, kosher dills, and then fire up the canner and, and then can them? I think you could, but I think you'd ruin them. There's two, there are two different processes at play that have, that have worked in two totally different ways. With the vinegar, we've, we've pickled it almost immediately. I mean, we've, we've thrown that acid in there all in one shot. And the, the, the cucumber or the carrot or whatever we're pickling responds in a certain way. The lacto-fermented product has been slowly altered by the interaction with the bacterium over time. And the only time I've ever seen anybody try to do it, it came out really, really mushy when they were canned. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure that it would be safe to can them with a water bath canner, even though the acidity's high. I'm not sure if it would be, according to safety protocols, safe. And I just don't think anybody really cares because you don't do that. So hopefully that explains it better because I don't want anybody misunderstanding when we're talking about something with a food preservation technique because I don't want anybody making themselves sick out there. At this point, I just realized we have not done the Bob Wells plant of the week, so let us do that now. Um, I have a, a new plant for you every week from Bob Wells Nursery, one of our partners in the MSB. Remember, they give you a discount of 10% off all your tree orders, and man, now is the time to be selecting and ordering your trees for spring planting. The, or if you want to do spring planting with trees, the earlier they go in, generally the better, especially as bare roots, which if they're getting shipped to you, that's what you're going to get. Uh, when the later you plant bare roots, the more stress they go under and the more likely they are to have pres pest pressure and other things. So early is better. And on the early is better, what do we have for you today? Uh, for a new plant of the week, we have the Flavor King Pluot. What the heck is a Pluot? It is a, a it is adaptable from zone six to zone ten. It is a cross between the plum and an apricot. It only requires four hundred chill hours and ripens in late July in much of the country. It has a sensational sweet flavor with reddish purple skin and crimson flesh. It will provide you with fruit in late to mid-season for your region. So I said late July, but it may change based on how far north or south you are. But late in the season for plums and apricots for you, okay, extending the stone fruit season for a few extra weeks for many people. And while the Flavor King Pluot is a, a Flavor King is a registered trademark, the tree itself has been off patent since 2009. So it may be reproduced, but not sold or marketed under the name Flavor King without an agreement of the trademark holder. So that's something I wanted people to realize, that when you have a plant, if it's patented, that means you can't produce it without paying a royalty to whoever has the patent. But with fruit trees, generally that lasts 20 years. So that was up for this tree a few years ago. So anybody that buys this that's into grafting, you can graft it. You can graft it and you can sell it as, I don't know, Jack Spirko Super Duper Plum Cot. What you can't do, is, or Plum Pluot, you can't sell it as the Flavor King Pluot because the trademark is something that's still held, I believe, by Dave Ziegler, who has come up with many of these plum apricot, apricum type things. Uh, it's really cool. But this is something unique. This is something like if you had in your backyard and you're sharing it with people, it's, it's totally different than what most people are familiar with. I have started to see some plum cots and other things like that 
show up in grocery stores and Costco and stuff, what have you. But we all know there's no substitute for it grown in your own backyard. You can find this plant more at BobwellsNursery.com. Remember, Bobwells does specialize in anything edible, fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as the hard-to-find specialty trees like the Flavor King Pluot, which is uh, being produced mostly right now through Dave Wilson Nursery. And guys, on that note, uh, at Bob's website, you can find all kinds of stuff being produced by Dave Wilson Nursery, and you can learn about more, more about a lot of it at Dave Wilson's website. Uh, some of the most innovative and coolest stuff in the edible landscape uh, world is out at Dave Wilson, including backyard orcharding techniques. And those of you on small plots of land, you might want to check out more information on backyard orcharding. You can learn more about that at DaveWilson.com. So I got an email today uh, from a couple people about swales. One, just a guy telling me he put one in in the, uh, the high desert of California. He sent me a picture of the swale, and it looks really good overall. He said that he noticed that One side certainly seemed to hold more water than the other, so he didn't think he got it completely level. Um, and he said, maybe I need more practice with my A-frame. It's possible that that's the issue, and it may not so much be. It may not be that you didn't get the level done right for your swale with the A-frame level when you mark out the swale, but maybe that you didn't excavate the bottom of the swale sufficiently, and you actually just have more less material removed. So usually if you want a swale to be dead level, and you, you would prefer that, you go back through the swale with the level, whether it's laser or A-frame, after it's cut, and you level out the bottom. Because the bottom is what determines how the water moves. Not just, you know, the top, which pretty much determines that the water is caught. And gently so. Anyway, it looks like a pretty cool swale. He said his... Uh, Still discharged, it didn't look like there was any erosion, so he thought that was it must be okay, um, but he wasn't sure if it was wide enough. I always like to make my sills at least, in any kind of sizable swale, at least six feet, two meters wide. The sills where the water can get out, you want that dead level so the water sheets over. And on a significant swale, and this looks pretty significant, you usually want to make a, an emergency Sill. So you have a sill that sets the height of the water, a primary, and then you have some sort of an emergency. So a lot of times you just do that out one end. So one end, maybe we take the end down just a few millimeters so it can go out the side. Uh, and then in addition to that, some swells are actually built with a stand-up pipe that is like a final, and, and that's all based on calculating your, ma your maximum rain event, how much catchment you have, how much water could end up in that thing, and how much water could be coming out of it at any one time, and that's a little bit advanced for this. But uh, this guy looks like he did a good job. There's another question came in, and it said, I'm thinking about putting in a swell, and I get a lot of this, and I don't want to pick on anybody, and maybe it's autocorrect, but I see it so often, I don't think it's just autocorrect. Swell, S-W-E-L-L. That is not what it is, a swale, S-W-A-L-E, swale. It's an old English word. The only reason I point that out, again, it is not to pick on anybody that might just think it sounds like swell, is that if you're trying to do research on it and you're Googling swell, you're not going to find what you're looking for. So I think it's important to know what you're looking for. So swell is the term. And basically this guy said, hey, I'm losing a lot of nutrient with rain. I guess that means you have erosion. Because if you don't have a lot of erosion, you're probably not using losing that much nutrient. Okay. And what I was wanting to do is put in a swell... And then plant it with something like bamboo or cattail or something like that so that I can trap that nutrient so it doesn't leave the property. 
Well, if you put in a swale, what is, let's, let's talk about what a swale is and what a swale does, those that are new to the concept. A swale is a ditch on contour. That means if you look at a contour map, you see all those little wavy lines on there, that's a contour line. That means that point A and B connected along that line are level to each other. And then we get a, a, a tool like an A-frame level or a laser level, and we mark a line on property. And then we cut a ditch on that line. And because that ditch is level, when water goes into it, it doesn't go forward or backward or up or down or move. It sits still, and it soaks into the land. And then it has to move through versus across the land. So the minute you put a swale in, and you stop the water from just running across the surface, out to the road, and down the ditch line, or through your neighbor's yard into a ditch line or whatever, you've already stopped a huge portion of nutrient loss. Because the water's taking the nutrient all along the surface to wash it away, and it goes in the ditch, and it falls to the bottom. And it sits in the bottom. And then the water slowly soaks into the ground. You're not going to get mosquitoes because a swale infiltrates, does not hold water. holds water for a couple days. If the mosquitoes want to land in there and lay their little wigglers, that's fine. A few days later, they're bouncing around and dying and baking in the heat. Okay, they, It soaks into the ground. And it takes the nutrient with it. And now it has to move through the ground much more slowly so that little bio, uh, little bioorganism stuff can interact with it and make all kinds of good stuff happen to it. And it collects in that ditch and slowly moves through. So we've already stomped it to a great degree. That doesn't mean we've prevented all nutrient loss. It means we've created a, a, a trap, right? Sort of a sink that starts to, to flow through and it, it reduces the entropy or the, the loss in the system. All systems have entropy. And we cannot prevent entropy. All we can do is slow it down, reduce its progress, and reduce it to a minimum. But you cannot ever have a system that is 100% free of all entropy. But we can use a little flick, and that's probably where this question came from. So if you imagine a system with swells in it, and then at the, at the, there's a point where you no longer control the property, Or maybe it, it goes into a type of terrain or a type of system that you don't want to alter. So at this point, you've done all you can with swales and water management and things like that. And, and whatever water you can't infiltrate is now going to go out your sill, over your overflow, through your pipe, whatever, and go away. And take whatever it has with it and go on its merry way to somewhere else. And you have your entropy. What if you want to hold it in and you want to use something like he asked about cattails? He said cattails or bamboo. Bamboo, we're going to put the bamboo on the shelf for a minute. Let's look at cattails, reeds, river cane, anything like that that grows an aquatic system. So what you do then is you take that last swale, and at the end of it, you put a small dam that does hold water, a pond. And in the shallow portions of that pond, you plant yourself your reeds or your cattails or whatever. And they, then when that water goes, instead of flowing off, it fills the pond. And the nutrient settles to the bottom. Shallow marine systems, one of the fastest ways in the world to build soil. Those cattails, reeds, what have you, suck that nutrient up. And then by cutting those and using them as mulch, We rebound the nutrient higher up in the system. So we could literally come through a couple times a year, 
cut those reeds and take them to the highest swale berm in our system and lay them down as mulch and start the whole ping-ponging process of nutrient recycling over again, thereby reducing our entropy with basically a ping-pong. However, that dam will eventually fill, it will eventually overflow, and some of the water and some of the nutrient will be allowed and let go. But now we've done everything we can to maximize it and reduce its speed through our system, to reduce the effect of the sink and create more an effect of a trap. That's what swales do. Now, one more thing about swales. We always talk about them on contour. I do want you to understand that not every swale has to be 100% on contour if we know why it's not. In key line design, what we want to do is move the water, let's say, from a ridge, from a valley to a ridge. If you think about a, 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 a think about a fairly steep slope, you know, something on the, you know, 10 degrees, not super steep, but steep enough that you can look at it and go, it goes up that way. And think about kind of a valley in the center of it, and then it comes out to two ridges, right? Almost a butt crack shape, just to make it totally clear. If we put a swale across that, And where it goes into the valley is actually just a little bit higher than as it goes out to the ridge line, the cheek of the butt versus the crack of the butt. So at the, the cheek, the cheek is one degree lower. So one inch over a hundred feet or maybe even just a quarter inch over a hundred feet lower on the cheek than the crack. Okay. And it, it does that in both directions. So the, the, where the, the swale comes through the center of the valley, it's got a high point. It very slowly moves the water out. And that way we're actually pushing the water out of the valley, which is naturally wet. And not only do we then hydrate the ridge lines, but we, we unsaturate the valley. So that's a little bit more advanced, but there's times you want to do that. And you might do it on, like, it really lends itself to large scale, but I'll use it a little bit here on my next project in my West Pasture, where I have this, like, it looks like it just goes straight downhill. But it doesn't. It, it, it starts out, the contour lines are almost north to south at the very top of it. And then they slowly straighten out, and then it slowly runs downhill, so it kind of, like, topples over. Well, there's a point where you get a pretty long contour line running north to south. And by going off a little bit, I can actually, it'll actually look like the water's being moved uphill. So by coming one degree off on the, on the, the, the southern side, which is the, the upgrade side, the water will move from down the field up to the top and begin its way back through. Swales are very cool, but it's all about understanding the hydrology. Um, and it, it, it's something that you learn a lot about in a permaculture design course. Sometimes people wonder, What, why you pay so much money to take a PDC and then maybe uh, spend even more money and go take an Earthworks course. So you have an understanding of these things. Because the, I know that I've lost some people today. I'm doing my best. It, it, it takes a, a, a visually seeing a lot of this stuff to truly, truly comprehend what you're trying to do here. But the other thing that I wanted to make sure I cover today, the, the person that wrote in and asked about doing this to rebound energy also said, I want to do a Hugel swale. Right? Everybody wants to do hugel swales. So hugel cultures, when we take wood, we bury it. All different kinds of ways that it's done, but in the end, you bury wood. It's a wood core bed. Okay, well, hugel in, in Austrian German means hill. It's hill culture. So generally, it's a high culture. So the way hugel culture was traditionally done is you had trees you got to get rid of. They're not really good timber trees. They're, not, they're trash trees. You got to do something with them. 
and you need to farm, and it's too wet for your roots at some time of the year and too dry at others. So you lay the wood down, and you bury it, and you create a raised bed. You plant into it, and this gets the roots of your plantings up out of being oversaturated, but the wood at core acts as a reservoir of water and a wick. And when it gets drier, it actually wicks moisture from below up into the bed, reduces your irrigation requirements. So it is both an overwater mitigation and an underwater mitigation device. Okay, It's all good and well. And then a swale infiltrates water. So everybody that hears about this, including myself at times, wants to immediately say, well, if we put them both together, that'll be better. Maybe, maybe not. You have to calculate how much water is in the catchment that's going to go in the swale. If you build a swale as a hugel mound and you haven't calculated the water and allowed for discharge, what will happen often is the water will over-infiltrate and the wood will float up. And a big giant pile of floating mud-covered wood will go downgrade in a giant mudslide flood. This is not generally what you need to be doing. There are places where it makes sense to combine a contour-based design with Hugo culture. That's fine, but please know what you're doing before you do this. Mark Shepard told me a story about somebody doing this. A bunch of people got together and said, we're going to make a hugel swale. They got permission from a church to build it in a church's yard. So they went and they hauled wood in from all kinds of places far away. That's a lot of input. That's really not what you're supposed to be doing. Then they made a great big swale and they threw all the dirt on top of the wood. They made a giant pile and they planted it and it looked wonderful. And then a giant storm came and did just that and took the whole swale mound down to meet the neighbors who were not happy. The church wasn't happy, permaculture looks bad, on and on and on, because you're not doing the calculations. A hugel bed is a element. A swale is an element. Combining them only makes sense when they just sort of end up that way. So how might they end up that way? If I had a whole bunch of kind of trash trees that needed to be cleared out along a swale line, and if I was basically laying down one or two logs and dumping dirt that was going to go get be made into a swale anyway there, and if I have done my calculations and I have my sill right, my emergency spillway right, my overflow right, my calculations right, fine. Makes sense. But the really the, the whole point of a swale is water infiltration, and, and the whole point of uh, a hugel mound is to even out the wet and the dry across time. And mainly, it's designed to build soil. Many ancient hugel systems work like this. You put your hugel mounds in, okay? You bury your trash wood, you plant annuals into them, slowly they sink over time, and you transfer at some point as the mound is decreased in its mass to where its kind of final size is to a perennial system. All right, so it's it's complicated, let's put it that way. But don't always try to be like, I want to be the first person to take A, B, and C and slam them together, because sometimes you get D, a really bad event, all right? Or you get F, you failed. So those are just some thoughts I wanted to cover, because I get a lot of questions on swales. And like I said, everybody and their brother wants to make a hoogle swale. Please only do this if you really know why you're doing it, and you've got the numbers calculated. They really are two different systems, and there's a reason you don't see Lawton making lots of Hugel swales uh, with his, you know, Hugels and his swales, or Holzer and his son making lots of swales with their Hugels. 
They're different elements that do different things. There is time, like I just explained, where they can kind of combine and function stack, but not always just for the sake of doing it. And guys, the things with permaculture design, you, you, you need to be clear on why you're doing something versus doing it for the sake of doing it. In other words, would I put in swales in every permaculture system I designed? No. No. It'd be hard for me not to because I'm really comfortable with it. I really understand it. And I'm really good at it, so it's my go-to technique. Okay? But I, I'm not as good at who... I understand who culture perfectly, but I, I'm not as good at it, and it's not really suited to my property to the level uh, that, that swale-based design is. So I'm less likely to use it here. So I'd be much more likely to leave hoogles out of a, a design than swales. But I can tell you right now, if I came to your house and I looked at your backyard and you had a 20th of an acre, 10th of an acre backyard, the ability to irrigate it, I would probably still in with some swell-like features, but there would be no swales that we would really think of as full-size swales. I might take your footpaths, mark out a contour line, and say, like, let's look at a couple contour lines and figure out where, where can we make our pathways on contour so that we can infiltrate water off your path. And we're going to use a contour-based concept, but we're not going to use a swale ditch. You know, could there be a little pond in the backyard somewhere with a little swale coming out of it? Maybe, but it's not going to be a swale-based design. It might still find its way in as an element, but honestly, the easiest thing for me to do is going to be to come back there, mark out your pass, again, as much contour with that idealism as we can come up with, put in some you know, rockeries and ponds and stuff like that for native habitat of, of, you know, frogs and toads and things like that and birds, and then do a design of where all the trees, bushes, shrubs fit in, And she mulch the shit out of everything and, and, and irrigate it. You won't have to use the irrigation that much because you're going to be sitting on, you know, eight inches of sheet mulch. And I don't need a lot of swales in that system. So I really want you guys, when you're, when you're figuring out what you want to do with your property, understand why you're doing what you're doing. Just like in your beliefs, I say understand why you believe. You believe whatever you want. Think I'm, I'm nuts about a, a political belief or a philosophical belief. That's fine. You can tell me I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm okay with it. As long as when I ask you, why do you believe what you believe, you actually can answer that question in a coherent, rational, logical manner. Even if I disagree with it, I respect that you've thought it out. You've taken your own ideas into consideration, and unless you think it's a good idea, I don't know, to bury your head in the sand and uh, on a beach with the incoming tide where you're going to die, I really don't care because you, you, you'll work it out for yourself now, okay? And, 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 and so many people in our political beliefs, our philosophical beliefs, our religious beliefs have not done that, and they just get mad if you challenge it. It's called cognitive dissonance. They just get angry if you challenge what they believe, Well, unfortunately, permaculture design seems to suffer from the same thing. People watch a video and, oh, Jack put in a swale. I want to do a swale. Oh, Jack put in a hoogle bed. I want to do a hoogle. I know. I'll stick them together. Might be a great idea. Might be a terrible idea. It always depends. I will say this. Make sure with any hoogle mount that's in any kind of contoured situation, That one, you can discharge the excess water, which should always be the case in any contour design. There's multiple plans for the maximum rain event. And number two, there's enough dirt on top of the wood that the wood's not going to float up and go downgrade to your neighbor's place. It's a real danger, and it really does happen. Let's move on to another one. Okay, so the next question that I have today comes to me from Tom. Tom says, hope you're doing well. 
How do I put my IRA gold in a safety deposit box? I look forward to your response. Thanks. Um, you don't, but you can, and maybe you shouldn't, unless you're already there. And I, I have a feeling Tom may already be there. In other words, Tom may already own silver and gold in his IRA. He already might have what they call a custodial account. So let's talk about how you do this, and then I'll tell you how you do it on your own and control your own metal, and then I'll tell you why I don't really recommend you do either one. So you can hold physical gold or silver in an IRA, where you actually have ownership of bars or coins. And there's what's called custodial accounts, where basically somebody acts as your, your custodian and holds it for you in a vault somewhere, let's say. Um And many people have been sold on this through commercials on, you know, Fox News is one of the, and the, the various right wing radio channels do a pretty good job of selling you on, did you know you can put gold and silver in your IRA? Yeah, but that doesn't mean you should. Remember the old saying, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should? It, it kind of applies here to a great deal. So the way you would do it if you actually wanted to be able to Open up a box, whether it's a safe in your floor or a deposit box at a, a bank account, and put your hands on it and touch it is what's called a self-directed IRA where you act as your own custodian. And it's not that difficult to do if you really, really want to. And there's a whole show I did years ago with Rob Gray on exactly how to do just that. So I will put a show, a link in today's show notes where you can hear how to do it if you want to in today's show notes. Okay. But here's what I'm going to say. Unless you're already there, don't do it. Okay. What I mean by that, if you already have physical metal and you'd like to be able to take delivery of it, look at it, see it and verify it's really there and control it. And you're kind of stuck with it right now. I, I, I understand. I'd almost say, don't do it anyway. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't freaking do this. And if you want to know why, call up your custodian and say, I want to sell my metal and convert it to cash and see how much it's going to cost you to do that. I don't mean necessarily they're going to charge you, but look at what silver and gold are trading for. And when you finally sell it and all the crap that goes on to do that and to get the money converted to a cash equivalent so you can buy something else with it, not even to take it out of your IRA, just to liquidate the metal and see what the cost is, you'll go, well, that sucks. I don't want to do it. Okay? <sighs> That's why. Retirement accounts need to have what's being held in them be as liquid as possible unless you're specifically, and you know why you're doing it, holding real property inside of one. And I won't get into that one today, but I can see why some people would do it. But again, it's like the swale with the hoogle mound. You better know why you're doing what you're doing. Okay, Most of the people holding silver and gold, physical metal, and IRAs have no idea why they're doing what they're doing. Because the why they're doing it is they got sold on a commercial by G. Gordon Liddy or somebody like that, and this being a good idea. The reason we hold gold and silver is to hold it long term in the form of physical metal because it is the most anonymous form and most portable and divisible form of wealth we can get our hands on. I can literally pick up enough money to start my life over 
in a handful of gold coins, shove them in my pocket, and go somewhere and do just that. It's mine. It's my property. I can divide it up into small pieces, parts, and sell it off in multiple places and not tell anybody what I'm doing, even though I'm supposed to. There's even forms of it where I can sell a certain amount of it every year, and it doesn't even matter how much money I made on it. It's legally tax-free with silver eagles, okay? <sighs> That's why I hold it. That's why I want physical metal. That's why I want something I can reach out, like the 44 Magnum shell I just picked up off my desk because I'm holding in my hand right now, and, and be able to hold on to this. This is an ounce of gold. This is five ounces or ten ounces of silver, and I want to hold it. It is because it's anonymous, it's physical, it's divisible, it's transferable, okay? And it's mine, and no one needs to know that I have it. An IRA is one of the most public ways that you can hold wealth in the world. It's an advertisement to the government. Here is my wealth. Look at it. And all you're doing when you become your own custodian is being the person that has to file all the paperwork and keep all the records that say where it is, where it came from, and if you've liquidated it and converted it, where it went and what it turned into. We don't have to do any of that with physical metal if you're not putting it in an IRA. Got it? So don't put it in there. If it's already in there, it might be worth waiting until it's reached a high point when you think it's a good time and sell it Convert it to cash, and if you still want to hold metals, go into an ETF inside your IRAs, an exchange-traded fund. Why? Because let's say gold takes a big spike up to $2,100, and I think, this is my retirement money. I just made 25% on my money. There's no way gold's going to hold that in the short term. I want to sell it, capture The, 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 the rise in value while I can and either keep it in something less volatile like cash or go into an equity play that's a better play for my retirement, that's a safer play right now, etc. And you know what I do to do that? I make a phone call or I go to a website and I say sell. In two freaking seconds, it's sold. It's sold. It's done. I've made the money. It's, it's captured. And I decide six weeks later when it tumbles back on its ass to $1,300, bucks, you know what? Good time to be holding gold again. I want to buy it. I do the same thing, and in two seconds, I'm holding the gold again. Yes, it's only paper. So is almost everything you're holding. Well, I want to hold some metal so that I can control it, and I know where it is. Put it in your pocket. Put it in a floor safe. Put it in a safe deposit box. Do whatever you want to with it, but don't put it in an IRA. Again, it's going... Government, hello, hey, hey, look, 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 guys, hey, hey, over here, over, hey, see me, hey, 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 see, I'm here, look, 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 here's my gold and silver, you see it? Let me give you a piece of paper that tells you everything that I have, where I got it, how much I paid for it, when I plan to get rid of it, here it is, here it is, here it is, Dion sign, big arrow pointing at your head, this is my gold and silver, yay, me! That is not why you hold physical metal. It's not why you hold physical metal. You're holding physical metal. One is an insurance program for your wealth. If everything goes to shit, it's still there. That means you don't want ETFs for that purpose. So you want physical metal. You're also holding it so that it can just maybe end up in the hands of your heirs someday. However you figure out to make that happen, I'll leave it at that. And what if this whole country goes to shit in a handbasket? That's the other reason you have it. Because it will always have value. 
And no matter what happens, no matter how bad they screw things up, there's value there. It doesn't mean that they might not like, okay, screw it up and sort of cobble it back together. And now you've relied on the physical metal in your IRA. They go, oh, you screwed yourself now, buddy. Boy, you have this new penalty for people like you. Okay? Don't do it. Don't do it. Do not do it. Don't do it. If you've already done it, then, yeah, you can go the self-directed route if you want to be able to put your hands on it. I don't think it's worth it. But I'll put a link out that shows you how to do it today in case you want to. But one more time, do not do it. And if you do, you better know damn well know while you're doing it. And understand something. When I say something like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and you say, I'm going to do it because, and those are filled in with logical, rational words that apply to your individual situation, you know why you're doing what you're doing, and I'm okay with that. If you can't do that, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, infinity, until you can fill those words in for yourself. And the more you learn, the more you'll probably realize on this one, better not to. Again, I'm looking at it for people, if you already are there and you don't want to change anything, but you do want to control and see and look at the metal, you can go the self-directed route. Again, I'll provide a link that tells you how to do that. Here's a really interesting philosophical question. I, I, I think this is one of those questions that... I have a, I, I feel an out of the park home run answer for, but that doesn't mean I don't think that it's a really great question. And it, it, I actually feel that the person asking this question has to be thinking at a really deep caring level to ask it. And, and I, I'm impressed with the intellectual, uh, requirements to even get to this question. It comes from a listener we'll call Matt. Uh, hi, Jack. Lately I've been wondering if there's an inconsistency in libertarian thinking on foreign intervention. On an individual basis, most libertarians would say people have an obligation to help someone who's being victimized. If you're walking down the street and see a little old lady being mugged, you should intervene. Morally, it's the right thing to do. However, on the state level, most libertarians would not support foreign intervention unless it is to eliminate a significant, direct, and immediate threat to our national security. If a peaceful ally is being victimized, why shouldn't we step in to help? Don't we have a similar obligation? How would you reconcile this difference? Okay, again, a very good poignant question, and it seems like a political gotcha, but it's only a political gotcha if you believe in the superiority of the state as opposed to the individual sovereignty of the human being, which I do not. So here's how I mean that. So let's say I'm walking down the road, I see this little old lady that looks like she's being mugged, right? And I see the guy that looks like he's a victim. And I go over to intervene. Maybe I draw my weapon. Maybe I grab the guy by the throat. It all depends on the situation, how much force is necessary. And the little old lady says, leave him alone. Well, what? She goes, he's not mugging me. We're arguing about something, and this is how we work out our differences. I'm in no danger. Get the F out of here. Ma'am, I'm sorry. Bye-bye. Because it's three individuals. We're all able to determine... Whether I'm really helping or not, one of my favorite things to say to people is, you think you're helping, but you're not, right? In the, in the cadence of Chandler Bing from Friends, and I'm sure this was in a Friends episode, but I never actually heard it there, and I may have created it for myself and assigned it to that person or that character. But I, I mean, I say this all the time. My wife will start stacking dishes at a restaurant uh, on our table for the person that's going to come bust them away. Now, you think you're helping, but you're not. Okay? They have their own procedure the way they stack things up. You're not helping. Leave it alone. It's their job. They know what they're doing. 
Okay? And in fact, one time she said, I can't be true. So I had a, had a waitress picking stuff up, and I asked her, and she said, yeah, we'd kind of prefer that you leave that alone. Because you don't know what we're carrying when we get here, how much we want to take at once, etc. We know how to do this. Oh, really? So, see, that all can be worked out. Now, we have the nation of ABC that we live in, and the nation of XYZ is being victimized by the nation of WXY. Okay? If the state decides we're going to intervene, they're taking my money, maybe I actually support the other side. Maybe I know people that live there and they say, this is our problem, let us deal with it. Okay? Maybe, <laughs> maybe the people we're helping are people that think they're helping, but they're not. Maybe we think we're helping, but we're not. If we didn't jack around so much in the, in the Middle East right now, there would be no ISIS. We are the direct cause of ISIS in the world today. They are primarily began with weapons that came out of Libya because the ambassador that was in Libya wasn't a freaking ambassador. He was an arms dealer. Okay, It wasn't just that there was no viral video that pissed people off. He was an arms dealer. The reason there was no support given, other than the people that just said it's the right thing to do, so I'm going to go risk my life to do it, and gave their lives doing so, is because we were never going to help because he was an arms dealer, and the weapons went to freaking Syria. Okay? And that is the genesis of ISIS, ISIL, and whatever else they call it. Because we think we're helping, but we're not. And sometimes we know we're not helping. Now, what about the legitimate point, though, that, hey, so-and-so's being victimized. We should help. I decide if I want to help. You decide if you want to help. As individuals or groups of individuals... We make decisions for ourselves who needs our assistance. And we talk directly to those people. So if you want to get your ass on a plane or a boat or a ship and go join the fight against ISIS because you've chosen to, under your own free will, paid for with your own money, or people that want to pay for you to go, hop your ass on whatever mode of transportation you want and go over there and fight the jihadists. Just realize you're feeding into the delusion that fuels their fight in the first place. Every time we drop a bomb on those people, we convince them that Allah really is on their side, that we're the great Satan, and they rejoice when we blow them up. Because it's being done by a state on behalf of a people who are completely divided as to whether it should be done or not. That's how I answer it. The state should only intervene to preserve... That which it's supposed to do in the first place, which is to defend the individual liberty of its citizens. That's it. Anything else? We should have people that say, hey, I'll go to, well, it's an all-volunteer military. No, it's not. No, it's not. Okay? It's all-volunteer to join. Okay? And it's joined mostly by 17-year-old kids that are still in high school, that see no future, that sit down and talk to the best salespeople on planet Earth. 
If you want a career in sales, go in the military and get into recruiting school, spend two years on the recruiting trail, and get out. And the corporate giants of the world will lay down and beg you to come work for them, and that is the truth. That is not hyperbole. That is not an analogy. That is the truth. A recruiter from the military can get a job in sales like that. They are sought because you can convince a otherwise free young kid to give up his freedom to serve his country. It is some of the most advanced sales training in the world. So the decision to join is general. Not always. Don't write me. I was 28 when I joined, and I, I understand. Okay, And then you know damn well you're the minority. The majority of our soldiers come in in their teens when they're impressionable and they've been sold on an opportunity they do not believe that they have elsewhere. And if they change their mind, tough shit. Well, they signed a contract, okay? And the contract is for four years. And a war starts. Yeah, you know, we're changing the terms of your contract. There's a writer in there that allows us to do that. We're sure when you were 17 your parents signed on your behalf, you knew what that meant, so no, you're not leaving. Okay? Uh, that means the people with the guns, the real guns, not the individual soldier, get to change the contract how they see fit. When I was in the military and Desert Storm picked up, everybody got this leave and earning statement. I don't even know if you get a paper one every every month like we did back then, but you know, basically it said how much money you made, taxes and your benefits and all that. And everybody looked at it and all of a sudden their their ETS date was like 10 years out. And like, oh yeah, they just indefinitely uh, extended everybody's contract until this is over. But don't worry about it. Let me tell you. There are a lot of 18, 19, 20-year-olds looking at each other like I what well, was in the contract? I, I didn't know that. So, first of all, the military is not all volunteer. Okay? It's not all volunteer in action. It's not like when they say, oh, we're going to have a war in Iraq. Everybody that would like to go fight the war, get on this side of the room. Everybody that thinks this is a bad decision and doesn't want to go fight this particular war, but still wants to be in the military, go on that. It doesn't work that way. You go where you're told, when you're told, and do what you're told. That's military service. And if that's going to be the case, then it should be for the preservation of liberty of the nation, which is, by the way, what they sell you on that you're doing. You're doing this to serve your country and defend it so we can always have freedom and liberty at home and mom and apple pie. Then, damn it, if mom, apple pie, freedom and liberty are not directly at stake, then we shouldn't be blowing people up and shooting them. Okay? And if you want a group of people that will go over there and act basically as private mercenaries, then it's between them and the people that hire them. You got it? That's how it works. That's how we justify it. Because the state is, is saying, okay, we're going to do this because it's imminent threat. Is it really an imminent threat? Who has the right to make that decision? You realize that all those crazy anti-war people find it as morally reprehensible that their tax dollars are used to bomb a wedding as the right-wing conservative finds it morally reprehensible that their tax dollars are taken from them and used to fund abortions. Do you if, if, you, if that's your issue, do you realize that? Those crazy commie pinkos are not crazy commie pinkos. They're opposed to war. 
Now, the last time I checked, communists were pretty damn good at war. So being anti-war doesn't make you pro-communist, right? It makes you pro-peace, which we should all be anti-war, pro-peace. That doesn't mean that I won't take out a club and beat, bash my enemy's brains into his ass if he's trying to attack me. But by being, I don't want war unless I'm attacked, I'm pretty prepared for the attack. Because I'm focused on what my enemy might be doing. And I'm ready to respond in kind. Libertarians are anti-war. That doesn't mean we're pacifists. Okay, We're not wolves. We're not sheep among wolves. No. The libertarian desires to be the lion among wolves. The wolf can do his thing and I'll do mine, but if he messes with my cubs, he's dead. Like that. And that fast. And what a great world we live in if that's how we all thought. What if we all had just this policy among soldiers? Never fire unless fired upon. Now, I don't mean these ridiculous rules of engagement. You know, well, they're shooting in my general direction. But what if every soldier on planet Earth had that rule? How many wars would there be? I'll leave you with that. The answer is zero, by the way. I know it won't work. I understand that. But remember, the quest for perfection is how you get as close to it as possible, even if perfection itself is not possible. Let's take another one. Uh, Damon asks, um, marriage penalty tax, you've mentioned it several times. I don't think you've ever explained it. So what is the marriage penalty tax, and does it really matter? Well, when you file your taxes and you're married, you have two choices. And, and, and they, the choices do allow you, like the marriage penalty tax is one of these things that your right-wing radio host overblows instead of explaining the actual issue. So I might mention it in passing, but I don't like get on a soapbox about it for an hour and a half or anything like that, never explain what it is. But I guess maybe I haven't explained it, or at least not recently. So, When, when you're married, and let's say I'm, you know, I'm married to Dorothy, and let's say back when she was still working, she has income, I have income. And we can file two different ways. We can file as married, separate, so she does her tax return, I do mine, or we file married, jointly, one tax return for the both of us. In many instances, everything is much more simple if you do married and joint. Um, and especially as you get into complex issues, like if one of you or both of you run businesses, it, it's hard to decide what goes where. It makes you more susceptible to audits, but even simplistic things like uh, a mortgage deduction. So you have a mortgage, you get to deduct the interest on the mortgage. Well, who takes the deduction? The property's jointly owned. Do you split it? Does one side take it or the other? It gets complicated. Where if you do a joint tax return, and let's face it, as I said last week in the debt show, this whole bullshit of people that get married, and I'll do my checkbook, and you do yours, and you pay your bills, and I pay mine. I pay half the mortgage, you pay the electric bill, I pay the water and the sewer bill. Well, this is all stupidity. A marriage is a merger. It's a partnership. And if you're not ready to merge your finances, you're not ready to marriage, merge your freaking life, folks, okay? Okay, grow the hell up before you get married. If you don't trust somebody with your money, don't sleep in bed next to them where they could bash your brains in with a phone while you sleep. I'm just saying. If you don't trust somebody with your money, don't have children with them. Okay? Don't get married if you don't trust them with your money. 
So a marriage is this merger of finances. So it just makes sense to file jointly. However, the truth is that two people of certain income brackets, and it just affects a lot of people, when they do so, pay in total more taxes than if they were both single or if they were married and both filed separately. And they call this the marriage penalty tax. In other words, the income is combined and therefore the tax rate goes to a higher bracket. Okay? And the way around this, do you have to like, you know, give a stool sample, pray to the, the Federal Reserve, sacrifice a child on their altar or something? No, it's, it's very simple. All you do is you file spouse A as a tax return and spouse B as a tax return. And if you have a CPA and, you know, at least a, a, a consumer level CPA like a Jackson Hewitt or, um, H&R Block, et cetera, you should. They should be able to take a real quick look at your income and your basic deductions and all and go, you guys should do X or Y. And then you just file two versus one. The problem with that and the legitimate point is, Two tax, uh, two tax returns have a higher probability of one of us getting audited. And when we get audited, we're both screwed. It's a problem for both of us. Okay? Um, there is this point where if you get an audit, then you're like, well, whose asset is this really? And, and one person getting dragged into the other. Where if it's just jointly filed, it's all clean. Okay? There's two, if, if you're paying someone to do your taxes, and you should, you're paying two fees instead of one. So it's just a more complicated thing. And what, what the conservative population is saying is that it could be built right into the system where that doesn't exist. Where the income is taxed to the individual, but the return could be done jointly. And I, I think it could, but it's probably more complicated than it seems. There probably is a really easy rate calculation that could be made that just down adjust the tax burden based on the, the individual contributions of income. It's probably something that can be put into a software program in five seconds. But this actually gets into the bigger issue. How screwed up and unfair and complicated and hard to understand is our tax system? We have one of the worst tax systems of any, any country in the world. You know, we're number one this, we're number one that. They always say, yeah, we're number one for the most screwed up, unfair, twisted tax system that's ever been contrived by a society ever under any circumstances, period. Um, well, it's progressive because the rich pay more. No, they don't. The richest people in this country pay the least amount of taxes percentage-wise to their total income of any person in this country. I would say the richest and the poorest People in the middle are the one to get shafted. And they get shafted mainly because it's so complicated and hard to understand. If you actually tried to figure out for yourself, well, how would we eliminate the marriage tax penalty? And instead of just saying, well, you just do it, and yeah, some bean had to do it for you. If I said to you, okay, look, show me the math, right? An average college graduate with some college algebra and trigonometry and stuff like that, and make it compliant with the code, And what new codes would need to be written to make this work? And what guidance would need to be pro provided to the CPAs of the world who do the preparation? You, you, I, 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 I don't know. All you could really do right now is, is make a, a cut-and-dry quick assessment, jointly or individually, which way will we pay less, and then go with that route. But again, it, it gets cloudy.
Because the whole thing is designed for you not to understand it. I believe it is unreasonable for people to pay taxes on a system, through a system, which is beyond the average individual's ability to fully comprehend. See, when you sign your tax return, you're stating that everything you did was legal and compliant, not under the law, but under the code. You know those people say, there's no law that says you have to file taxes. Oh, there's a law empowering the IRS to levy taxes, and then they give themselves the right to require you to file taxes with something called a code. That is a bunch of bullshit that will get your ass thrown into prison along with Edward Schiff, who's there because he told you you could do that. So don't believe that bullshit. It is, that is, that is a bigger scam than the unconstitutionality of the income tax. Now, do I believe the current income tax is unconstitutional? Yes. Do I think it matters? Not at all, because there's not enough people out there that are willing to fight back and do something about it, and you not filing your taxes or filing in some kind of weird uh, tax protester way isn't going to cause any problems for anybody but you. you. Got it? So that's what it's really all about. It's about the fact that two people that file jointly in many instances will pay more than if they filed separately. And when the objection comes, well, why don't they just file separately? That, of course, is a valid objection. It is, in fact, what they should do, but it does complicate things, and it does create greater expense and greater time uh, and greater resource drain. And it creates a lot of gray, because now you have people filing for their portion of property within a marital estate, where everything isn't quite that clear. So you just basically say it's half. And hope that when it's looked at under an auditor's eyeglasses, that it in continues to be that. What if it's my business? Well, then my business should be under its own Schedule C. Well, that's fine. But my home office deduction for my business that comes out of the mortgage on our home, do I take it all or does she take part of it? Or does she effectively lease it to me since she's not using it? There's actually an answer to that, but that's the kind of thing you get into. And it's it, it's the more layers there are, the more retirement accounts and joint managed accounts and, and, and all of the things that go into creating deductions for a system that's inherently unfair become more and more complicated when you split a married couple. And when they've been married for two years and, you know, She's a school teacher and he's a police officer and they don't really have many investments yet and they're renting a house and or renting an apartment or something like that and they don't have any kids yet and well it's pretty easy to, to do separately if it makes sense. Usually, by the way, at that time it doesn't. Usually they'll pay less filing jointly. Okay. But later as they become successful, that's when the penalty, if you want to use that term, kicks in. And that's when it gets, you know, well, I've got, an, I've got my own IRA I contribute to, and then we have this joint uh, account where we hold stocks outside. So the sale of those stocks is subject to capital gains tax. But who actually is sold? I mean, it's a mess. It's a mess. And it's why I'm for no income tax. But if there is one, it should be just a flat tax with no deductions. It's just a flat tax, and it should be the same for everybody. The billionaire, the trillionaire, and the guy that makes $10,000 should pay the same percentage. Well, the rich should pay more, and they actually would. You understand that? And they actually would. Uh, let's go ahead and take another one. So here's an interesting one. This comes from Andrew, and Andrew says, Hey, Jack, are you secretly on God's prognostication payroll or what? 
I'm growing to hate it when you're right. And he sends me this uh, Facebook screen capture. And what it says is from News 3 HD NBC affiliate question of the day. Do you believe we are headed for World War III? So back a few weeks ago when we were all being scared to death about measles because we were all going to die because some dude in Kansas or Sheboyganville or whatever didn't have his kid uh, vaccinated and the anti-vaxxers were going to kill us all because they were creating a problem with our herd immunity. And this is the bullshit they were actually getting. And people were actually fighting with each other and cussing each other out in social media. I said it was all bullshit and within two weeks you wouldn't hear hide nor hair about this. Uh, and I kind of came on and did a Jack Was Right segment exactly two weeks later. And But what I said at the same time was, and what you're going to have this all replaced with, is ISIS is going to get us all. all. You're going to think ISIS is going to set off a bomb in your closet, in your in your bathroom or something. Nuke your, nuke your house individually or something like that. Peppered with rumors of World War III. And... Lo and behold, all of a sudden, not only did MMR go away, but every one of the major news sites, you went to the front page, and there were scary guys in hoods with AK-47 from ISIS. And, oh, okay, well, that's pretty obvious, because ISIS always was a problem. Like, yeah, yeah, maybe they're doing a little bit more. And all of a sudden, things like Glenn Beck comes out on his show and says, it could be World War III. And people are like, holy crap, how did you know that? And then, all of a sudden, the mainstream news starts talking about it. Well, how could I know that? Do I have secret operatives inside the NSA leaking information to me like Edward Snowden or something like that? No, I pay attention. Here's why I knew this was going to happen. It was time for the ISIS thing to get fired back up. Um, you know, they had done some pretty outlandish things, and uh, you guys were starting to figure out that you weren't going to get measles, so we needed something else, and that was the most convenient thing to go to. And there really is a real problem there. I mean, I, I'm not being sarcastic, just so you understand. There really is a real problem. These people are freaking crazy. The, the, the people that are actually part of ISIS, make no mistake about it, are apeshit, crazy, apocalyptic idiots that do want you dead. Okay? It really is a problem. We can ignore the fact that we're largely responsible for it, or we can admit it, but it is a problem. It is not the problem for us here in America they'd like you to believe it is. Well, they'd like to get over here and blow us up. And for the last 50 to 100 years, somebody somewhere has wanted to come here and blow us up in some way, and occasionally they pull it off. I'm not going to walk around worrying about it, because i got shit to do. And I'm still more likely to be killed by a shark or a gravel truck than a terrorist bomb. Okay? And, and it was so, but it's a legitimate concern. So it just makes sense. Now, if we can lather it up a bit. Now, let me tell you something, though, guys. There's two sides to this legitimate threat. There's the legitimate threat that is, and there's the hyped version of that threat that you're presented. So recently I posted a picture on Facebook. This is just too much. You got these pictures of these terrorist jihadi ISIS guys, and, and, and they're bowing down to pray for their, you know, whatever, how they pray, and they're praying pointed in different directions. Now, anybody with the most cursory understanding of Islamic faith knows you pray towards Mecca, and 
yes, the earth is round in technically any direction you want, but no, there's a, these people are fundamentalists, okay? They take the Quran, its literal translation as being exact, and it being universally applicable. So when it says to do something, they believe it should be done, even if, like I talked about earlier, the person that actually is educated to this says, well, that was for this time, for this purpose, and it doesn't apply right now. They say yes. It would be just like someone taking the Old Testament of the Bible and saying, hey, you know what? Your wife is your property. Because it says so. It should be treated as so. Your daughter's your property. The Bible says this too. Okay? Because in the Old Testament, if someone defiled a virgin, they didn't know the virgin for defiling her. Read Leviticus. Oh, the father. Because they damaged his property. The reason it says not to covet your neighbor's wife is because it's his property. So if we actually had a literal, direct, time-insensitive interpretation of the Old Testament and the New Testament all together in one big giant dump, and people living that way, we'd have much the same problem. That's who these crazy people are. They just do it with the Quran. Okay? They're nuts, and they will kill you. It's a real problem. So it makes sense to lather it up. But make no mistake about it. They do know their version of their faith, and they should not be praying in different directions at the same time. So the contention of that picture was that you know people like the CIA might put together some stuff like this to make you believe that this threat is creating photo ops and shit. And the guys that they have doing it, like, okay, get down and pray, and they just go down wherever. Uh, is that what happened in those pictures? I, I don't know, but it's possible. Is it probable? I'm not even sure. But it is interesting to see. There's the one picture that goes around, and it's got this guy screaming, like, ah, you know, like, that kind of guy. And there's about 20 different places you see this guy's face. It's the same guy. And he's all—he's in Syria. He's in Jordan. This guy has to be an AP photo, uh, photo, uh, you know, like model or something. It, it, so this is the kind of thing that's going on. There's a story I'm not going to cover today, but I'll put a link in it to give you the short version. Our our government and the British government collectively hacked into the company that makes the SIM cards for all the cellular carriers and stole the encryption data so that they can get information on all our phone calls in Europe and here, with no warrants because they don't need them because they have the encryption keys that are used by the SIM card in the core of the network. I'll put a link to it. I don't want. It's very long. I read through the whole thing today. I, I, I don't want to go too deep into it. I can't tell you that I'm 100% verified that it's true, but I will tell you this. Whoever wrote the article understands cellular networks. Before I did this full-time, one of the companies I, I, I was an officer in, with Syrian Optimization Services that develops optimization algorithms and predictive algorithms for cellular data networks and, and, and specifically operates in the core. So I know a little bit more about network cores than most people would. And this article is so spot on with the role the security application plays in the core and how that interacts with the SIM cards if this is not credible, the person that wrote it literally is a, a network engineer for a cellular company. A, a generally, frauds aren't perpetrated that way. So I just want to 
assume, because we do know that they've been spying on our phone calls. Let's assume they also broke into the private corporation that makes the, the algorithms for the cars and stole it. Let's suppose that's true. Do you really think a government that would do that wouldn't have maybe some people pose for some marketing to sell you that the threat might be a little bigger than you think it is? Isn't that reasonable? Using your logic, not getting all mad with your cognitive dissonance, we have to kill the terrorists, no! right? Just let go of that for a minute. And just say, the, 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 the government that would spy on its own citizenry, collect the data from your Aunt Edna's phone calls, build the data center in Salt Lake City, Utah, so huge they have to use power from the Texas grid to keep it running, and strategic water reserves from the state of Utah to not have it burn itself down that that government might also actually have someone pose in a photograph to make it look worse than it already is? Does that mean everything's a false flag and ISIS isn't real and it's a phantom? No. They're real people. They're really apeshit nuts. They really want you dead. And there's really a whole bunch of them over there. And they would love to blow you up. But every time we bomb them, we feed their delusion. The only thing they understand is power and strength in a U.S. missile. No. That is literally like dumping gas on a fire. Every time we open a bomb bay door and bomb these people, we feed their revolution. Do you know the easy answer to the Middle East? Do nothing. Be a libertarian. If you hurt me, I will hurt your ass back tenfold. And I will wait and see what you do next time. Otherwise... Piss off. Withdraw. Give them no resistance. Give them no recruiting tools. Let them, they're killing each other. Okay? Fine. Well, we should do something. I'll tell you what. Why don't you go do something? Back to our other question about libertarianism. Why don't you go do something? Why don't you, at your own expense, without stealing my money, you go do it? Oh, and by the way, if they, if they, if they, Cut your head off or something? You went there by your own choice. Don't expect that our country will bomb the shit out of another country because you, who chose to go there, for whatever reason you went, got killed. No. doesn't work that way. If we could prosecute the individual that did it, fine. But we're not going to war over one person. Or ten people. Or twenty people. It doesn't make sense. So you go do something. But how would I know that's where we were going? Because it all made sense that we would. But what about the World War III thing? You see, it's all about Cyprus. It's Cyprus and the Ukraine. But the Cyprus government has made an agreement with the Russian government to renew a strategic agreement to allow the Russian military to use Cyprus ports. And that's what really happened. But when this started getting reported, as the Russians are building a naval base in Cyprus, and all of this crap was going on with the Ukraine, It had to come there. It had to come in. It had to be. There had to be. See, the main course is ISIS. But there could be World War III. That's the waiter with the big pepper mill putting a little pepper on your steak. I don't have insider information. I just pay attention. They're lying to you people. They're bullshitting you. There's a threat. And instead of just saying, here's the threat, here's what it is. Because you might come to the conclusion yourself, then wait a minute. So these people are nuts. And they believe that we're the great Satan. And they want Armageddon right in the Middle East. They want a war. 
They want a battle. They want mushroom clouds. They want World War III. They want a battle. They want to march. They want to rally the troops around. We are evil. They want resistance. Well, then maybe, maybe we shouldn't give them any. Maybe we should just like mind our own freaking business and let their people sort out their own shit. We're the only ones in the world. Oh, bullshit. We're the only ones in the world that can do it. Horseshit. You, you notice you don't see ISIS marching on the Turkish capital. Do you know why? They'll get their asses bombed in mass. They will go into flames. And the people that are following believe the bullshit. But the people that are leading, it's all political. It's just their version of the state being willing to murder to get what it wants. In this case, fundamentalist Islam shoved down the throat of people whether they want it or not. But the people behind us, the people really at the top of the ISIS group, you think they really think they want they want the whole place turned into a glass factory? No, that's their tool that they use to manipulate their people. Just like you're manipulated over here by yours. This is not religion. This is politics using religion. How did I know we'd go here? Because I know that. And when I look at political agendas of both sides, that's the only place we would go next. Now, I'll be honest with you. I haven't quite figured out What's our next? What's our next one? I haven't quite sorted that out yet, and that leads me to believe that this cycle of ISIS is going to get you and blow you up, you know, has a good three weeks in it yet before they're still dangerous. They're still scary. We still need to talk about them. Hannity and Limbaugh still need to mention them a couple times a week, but they'll go on the shelf where they can still be seen, but on the shelf for a while, and there'll be some new fear. And, and the truth is they probably don't even know what it is yet. They are opportunists. Like, they didn't decide two months before the, the, the measles hype that they were going to hype measles. But as soon as there was enough uh, of a story to hype measles, they decided to hype measles and come out with the anti-vaxxer uh, crap and propaganda and try to scare you and make you fight your neighbor and divide you apart. So there'll be something else, you know. Some new version of the flu or uh, some new type of uh, tax reform or, you know, probably, you know what it'll be? A whole new ramp up on amnesty for illegals. There's your next cycle. I, I'll, I, I'll bet you. Like, it's, it's there now. It's bubbling under the current. But when the ISIS fear campaign ebbs. Because just like torturing someone, you can only work a certain body part a certain way for so long before the person goes into shock and it stops working. They can only scare you with something for so long before it starts to lose its effect. So when they feel that the American people are like going, yeah, where, where are they? I checked my closet. There's no jihadis in there. they, they got to go to something next. It's probably going to be on this amnesty thing. There'll be some court decision or some new edict or some attempt by uh, Republicans to repeal or block or something. And the story will be that if one side gets its way, it's going to be a catastrophe for the economy. The whole, you just might as well set the banks of the country aflame. Let's see if it works out that way. Anyway, I think I've gone long enough for you guys on a uh, Tuesday show. Oh, it's going to freak you guys out. Because, I mean, I just pulled that out of my ass when I'm right about that. But 
I'll bet you. I bet you that's the big new news cycle to come is the ISIS one ebbs. Anyway, uh, remember, the reason I go into these topics like this on these, these Monday shows usually, Tuesday this week, is to encourage you to think critically and logically and to start analyzing this stuff. To realize your government does lie to you. Not it will lie to you or they can lie. Your government lies to you. Just accept that. Just accept right now that a lot of what the government tells you, specifically the government's message through its emissary, which is the media, is lies. And a lot of what it tells you is the truth, but marketed in such a way to accentuate the truth to the extreme and then make it a lie. And it is marketing. And I, I can put it to you this way. When you watch a TV commercial and you see a person go, I had problem XYZ, and then I asked my doctor about drug ZYX. My doctor told me blah, blah, blah. And then you see a guy in a white coat, and he says, I always talk to my patients with chronic blah, to moderate blah, 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 about bullshit blah, 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 right? All right. Does that drug actually do what it's claiming to do? By and large, yes. Yes, it does. Is it as good as they say it is? Come on, is any product on any commercial as good as the commercial says it is? Listen to the side effects. I'll leave that to speak for itself. But you know, you know. Okay, now here's the big thing. The person that starts out with, I talk to my doctor about my moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, right? Okay, do, <laughs> do, do you think they really did? Do, do you really think that's, that is actually a patient? Or is that an actor saying what they want a patient to say, but no patient would ever say. Because if you ever talk to anybody and say, you know, I was talking to my doctor and I have this condition, it's moderate to severe. No one even talks that way, right? So because there's a desired effect, even though you're telling a basic story, this product treats this illness this way, the source of it is your doctor. If you have this problem, you should talk to your doctor, right? That's the formula for the commercial. Because that's the formula, the job of the person that puts the marketing together is to make the commercial as likely for that to happen at the end as possible. To measure it within infinitesimal percentages. If it goes up by one hundredth of one percent, that's good because we're marketing to 300 million people. That's a shitload of money. Okay, And then there's a cascading effect. If I can get that little tiny increase, and they use it, and it works, whatever that means, and they tell somebody else, the whole cycle goes through again. It might be a 1, a 2, a 3, a 4% increase from a 100% increase on the initial marketing. Okay, Now, 4% makes a shitload of money for Pfizer, Okay, but it swings elections for your government. Got it? Okay, so... Even when the story, these people are crazy and want you dead, is the truth, the marketing of the story also will have actors who are set up to play specific parts and the messaging will be assembled in such a way to make what they want you to believe, this is dangerous and we need to do something more likely than not if they just told you the basic story the way it really is. So putting a couple guys in some masks and saying they're the real deal, I don't see that as being beyond the possibility from the same government that will break into a private company's computer systems, steal their algorithms, 
so that it can spy on your activities with your cell phone. Those two things don't seem that drastically different. And I don't think you have to believe that the U.S. government blew up the World Trade Center with thermite to get to the level that they might pose an actor in a picture. And that some of what you're seeing might be carefully crafted marketing around a somewhat realistic message versus just the real story of what's really going on. And I do these shows so that you will think that way. Not so that you will draw the conclusions that I do, but so that in that thinking, you will draw your own conclusions and know why you believe what you believe. And more importantly, to know why you want to know what you're learning. Because many times, the information they're giving you, you'd be just fine if you never heard it. In fact, you might be better off because you'd work on the things in your own individual life. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow our Revolution